Welcome, I'm Meiji Mutz, to another exciting episode of Cadaver Dogs Podcast. I'm Rob Basergia. I'm Devin Shepard. And I'm David B. Jacobs. And we are Cadaver Dogs. How's it going today, guys? I'm happy to be back with you guys. It's been over a month. It's been a long time. We missed I you know. on the last episode. I was traveling the world, getting <laughs> getting horror on the other side of the, of the what is this, the Atlantic? The Pacific? The Atlantic. <laughs> the Atlantic, yeah. <laughs> That's the other side, really on the other side of both. Other side of both, technically. That's true. That's true. Yeah. See, I'm Depending confused because I grew up on the other side next to the Pacific. So I'm never like... <laughs> oh, right, right. It's colder on that side, isn't it? On In the water. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Mm. Lots of great whites, actually. Um, yep. Oh, really? I think we had some great white... Sh- fuck me. We had some great white... Sh- Someone else talk. <laughs> we have lots of great whites on the beaches of... Uh, I don't know great whites. We have great lots of white- sharks... On the beaches around yeah. here, I think that's what I was trying to say. Yeah, I don't know sightings. if they were great. Were they great whites? Lots of shark sightings. Lots of beach closers this summer. Yeah, there's some hammerheads around too. I've heard like one of my uh, coworkers sees boats and he's been seeing hammerhead sharks around and all kinds of shit. Yeah, that's terrifying. We're talking about sharks again. We did this on our mini sode. We spent like half an hour talking about sharks. Sharks are scary. <laughs> I don't care what anyone says. They're really scary. Sharks are cool. If you're in the, you're in the water with a shark, like you should probably leave. <laughs> Yeah, you should definitely leave. Well, what's new? What what's new with you guys? I feel like uh, you know, since I've been gone, what uh what's been happening? David, you got you got anything exciting? Funny you should ask. Uh we just finalized my short film Pillow Talk that I directed back in February. Woo! It's a little five minute horror bite that I hope all you manging mutts will be able to watch at some point. We're doing a festival run first, hopefully it'll be online eventually. <laughs> but we'll be making our premiere at Atlanta Horror Film Festival on October 14th. So if any of you are in Atlanta, you should totally come. And if not, then just follow us for updates. We'll keep you all posted through Cadaver Dog social media. Oh, that's a good idea. Okay, shall we get started? Oh, wait, wait. I do. I do. I'm just going to plug one thing because David said it. We're going to be screening mm. my short film, Eat. At the Portland Film Festival, that's not a horror festival, but then also the Telluride Horror Film Festival, which I believe starts on the 14th of October, so it's coming up uh, if you guys want to check it out if you're in Colorado. It's a good one. I heard it's a good nice. one. I think I saw Eat. You showed me that, right? I saw Eat. Eat is great. Yeah, you guys yeah. gave notes on it. Yeah, it's it's a, it's an apocalyptic zombie movie where you have to eat human flesh in order to not turn into a zombie. Mm. Nice. It's good. Yeah, it's directed. Yeah. It's it's by mostly the same team that did A Nightmare Wakes, which is oh. my horror movie on Shudder that I will always plug uh, if you guys want to check that out. Yes, and I'm sure you've all seen it by now. Yeah, if, if you've you been listening it, to our what podcast, the fuck are you doing? Then... <laughs> <laughs> anyway, thanks yeah. thanks for letting me plug, guys. Uh, no problem. So uh, before we get going, please follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Cadaver Dogs Pod. That's at Cadaver Dogs Pod on Twitter and Instagram, uh, where we post a whole lot of cool horror movie content. So this week, I am really excited because we're going to go back in time, more than 80 years now, for our first film. Even the man who is pure of heart 
and says his prayers by night. May he become a wolf when the wolf's bane blooms and the autumn boon is bright. <coughs> Sorry, I'm getting over a cold. <laughs> uh, Larry Talbot is a gentle giant, returning home to his father's castle, cause there's gotta be a castle. He's content to spend his days flirting with the neighbor Gwen even after learning she's engaged. He takes her and her friend Jenny out to visit the Romani caravan passing through town and have their fortunes told. Unfortunately for them, one of those Romani is Bela Lugosi. Uh, not Dracula, though, a werewolf. Uh, the, the movie is called The Wolfman. It's a werewolf. You got it from the poem, right? Uh, Bella transforms and murders Gwen's friend Jenny before Larry takes out the wolf with his silver-tipped cane he'd purchased earlier that day. Bella's mother confronts Larry and explains to him what is happening. Bella was a werewolf. Now Larry is a werewolf too. After she warns him, she gathers the caravan to depart. The Romani don't want to be here when the next monster rises. Sure enough, Larry transforms and kills randomly. A pentagram, the symbol of the werewolf, appears on his chest to mark him, and he can see it in the palm of his next victim, Gwen. At this point, Larry's father has had enough of this nonsense. John Talbot wants to prove his son's innocence and for his son to see that he cannot possibly be a werewolf. With Larry's consent, he straps his son to a chair while the villagers go out on a hunt. But before John departs, Larry begs him to take with him the silver-tipped cane. Sure enough, the straps are not enough, and when Larry transforms, he breaks free. As predicted, he attacks Gwen, but John is there to intervene. John brutally beats the monster with the cane again and again until it finally dies and transforms back into Larry Talbot. John reels as he sees that he has murdered his own son. This is The Wolfman, starring Lon Chaney Jr., the legend himself, and Claude Rains, another legend himself, directed by George Wagner, no pun intended, from a screenplay by Kurt Ziodmak. I looked up several pronunciations of that. They conflicted with each other, so I hope I got that right. <laughs> and I, I just apologize, I'm... Uh, I'm getting over a cold, so I, I might sound weird. <laughs> My first question was, hey, David, how do you pronounce the writer's last name? Because I, too, looked it up and <laughs> could not find an answer. Ziad Mac is what I'm going with. What <laughs> <laughs> a name. Okay, well, I'm going to start. I'm just going to go right into this thing, because I think, like, there's a very, very obvious thing that we want to talk about today, and it's very blatant in this movie. This film was in, made in 1941. Ziad Mac is a Polish Jew who fled from wherever, it, whatever country it was Nazi at that time. Germany. Yes, to America, ended up writing this movie. In the movie, there are stars imprinted on people. Please tell me, uh, <laughs> what, what are your guys' thoughts on that? Well, uh, <laughs> nothing. <laughs> I don't think it's that obvious, at least not today. Maybe it was more obvious then in context. But once it was pointed out to me, it was really clear that this looks quite a lot like, I mean, it doesn't look like the Star of David, but it's an obvious stand-in for the Star of David. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, which for those who don't know, it's a Jewish symbol. It's a six-pointed star. You probably all knew that. And in Nazi Germany, it was law that Jews had to wear the Star of David on their chests, um, on their coats, whenever they went outside, uh, in order to make sure that everybody knew that they were Jewish. 
Yeah, and our so our main character, Lon Chaney Jr., who's the son of the great Lon Chaney, he's given this star and he kind of becomes one of the outsiders in the town, which are the, I just learned this, the Romani people who, uh, in the movie, they constantly call them gypsies, which I now found out is not exactly a slur, but a pejorative term. And it seems like that group of people mostly goes by Romani. Is, isn't there another term for it? Yeah, Romani or Roma. Isn't there another group, though, that goes by something different? There's also the Sinti. The Roma and the Sinti are somewhat distinct. I don't know the details of it. I did a lot of research very quickly. But there are the Roma and the Sinti, but it's also uh, correct to just group them both together as Roma Romani. The Romani people were they, they, they were nomadic, so there wasn't like a specific Romani culture. There were many different Romani people, and they all had different culture, different religion. There is no specific Romani religion. So it it's a group that's also, you know, it's, it, it's complicated. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, the point being, it's a loose group, but at the time of the Holocaust, they were all also subjugated and murdered en masse by the Nazis mm. and others. Um, actually, all throughout history, they were subjugated, and a lot of laws yeah. were directed at them in the same vein as were against the Jewish peoples. So this movie kind of having Lon Chaney Jr. step in as part of the uh, Romani culture, because now he kind of takes on... He, he basically just replaces Bela Lugosi's character verbatim. She even kind of refers to him as her son, which makes me wonder, mm. I don't know if Bela Lugosi is actually, uh, what's her name, the uh, the old woman's son, or if she's just speaking to him as if he's her son, because she has some sort of connection to the werewolf curse, in a way. Maleva? Maleva, yeah. She's actually like an old stage actress who was very famous before this. Oh, cool. Too. Oh, amazing. Uh, yeah, she she was in a lot of these like movies as like the old, uh, you know, fortune teller woman. That's really interesting. Actually, on that, do we know anything about her beyond that? Like, is she also from a, a foreign country like Bela Lugosi? Uh, yeah. Oh, I the actor? Like Ukrainian yeah. or something. Okay. Question for you, David, because you did the bulk of the research here. Um, is there like a specific area that the Romani um, migrate from? Well, they migrated from a very, very long time ago, but... Um... Well, I mean, because they, they're they they're traveling people yeah. is, is what I mean by yes. the, the migration. So originally the Romani people, 99% chance came from the Punjab region of India. Uh, the reason that the slur originated is because they were mistaken for Egyptians because... People just see brown people and say, oh, you must be Egyptian. It's stupid. Sure. Yeah. Oh, I, I have a correction. No. Uh, Maleva is not Ukrainian. She's Russian. Okay. Thank you. Which right now is kind of a big distinction. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, they would migrate all around, mostly Europe. But I mean, there are Romani people everywhere. There were Romani people everywhere even then. But they were mostly in Europe, mostly in Eastern Europe. There were a few countries that they were in, especially, which I have in an article, but I didn't write it down, so I'm not going to have it off that. But we'll link articles in the description so you can learn yeah. more as well. Okay. Well, so the the reason why I asked is just I'm interested because they cast these two actors, Bella Lugosi, as the um, quote-unquote son, which is a really interesting thing to point out, Rob. And then this this Russian actress, both as the Romani people, which as we know, Hollywood tends to just be like, oh, you're you have a accent, you can play just whatever, right? Um so I was curious like if they actually cast them 
correctly in these roles being Eastern European, or if they were just like, eh, you sound not American or you're not English, like go over there. Well, they're not Romani. Right. Well, exactly. Yeah. But I was, but I, I was asking in the terms of like, oh, well, if the Romani yeah. people like were mostly made up of these Eastern European, you know, have, have a history in, in Eastern Europe, then it would make more sense. But it sounds like not. It's probably less bad than casting Lizzie Olsen as the Scarlet Witch. Huh. It's probably less bad than that. Yeah, but <laughs> basically, Bell Lugosi was a stand-in for like any foreign kind of evil guy. Uh, mm-hmm. As he was Hungarian, you know, he played a Transylvanian as Dracula. He played something in White Zombie. He was like a voodoo shaman of some kind, you know, and he had a zombie. Yeah. You ever see that one? Yeah, yeah he was always playing these like foreign characters um, because he had a thick accent. So I definitely uh, accuracy was not really the point. Yeah, it's just it's there's an irony to it, I guess, when you're like casting these people in a movie and we'll we'll talk more about this. But in a movie about xenophobia, <laughs> essentially, <laughs> Like it's it's just yeah it's just interesting it's very 1940s old Hollywood yeah Zion Mac has talked about using this movie as a metaphor for how he felt people saw him in Germany there's a quote from him I'll read I was forced into a fate I didn't want to be a Jew in Germany the swastika represents the moon when the moon comes up the man doesn't want to murder but he knows he cannot escape it the Wolfman destiny so he openly discussed how the movie is a metaphor for Judaism. I haven't found anything where he discussed his use for Romani people. Mm. I imagine he did that intentionally because, like, it's pretty obvious these were also people who were persecuted under Nazi Germany. They were also genocided in the Holocaust. They lost, like, 25-50% of their entire population died in the Holocaust. It's freaking insane. Wow, that's a lot. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah, it seems kind of obvious that he was entering into this ostracized group or persecuted group because, yeah, like I said, he he switched for Bell Lugosi's character. Yeah, no, exactly. They're they're passing on this this curse. It's essentially they're yeah. passing on this burden. Right. I agree with you, David. I think that the yes, the screenwriter did do this with an intention. There's several points throughout where the woman is like purposely ostracized from the community mm-hmm. yeah one when her son bella lugosi's characters after he died and they bring his coffin into the into the church she's there and the priest or whoever it is that's in there is like <laughs> you know he, he kind of puts her down for having her own religion and for having her own culture yeah. and is like i cannot believe you're you're gonna do this festival over this death uh and you're not going to do a proper a proper funeral in the church and there's also even when people lash out at larry uh the parents the family of jenny who is the girl that gets killed by bella comes up to him and is like how could you take my daughter to see these she uses the slur but these romani people um how how could you do that like as though it just assumed that they'd be in danger for being near people of a different ethnicity. Yeah, it's almost like Lon Chaney's character is passing until he uh, enters the group he's actually supposed to be part of. 
which I guess could be a metaphor as someone who like doesn't necessarily look Jewish during the time of the Holocaust. But now that he's forced to wear this Mm. image, people understand, you know, there's obviously a stereotype for the way you you should look if you're part of a group. Like, Mm. for instance, I'm like half German Italian, but I don't look very German, but my brother looks very German. So in either case, you could put us in either place. And if you were to sew on a letter or whatnot, uh, some sort of signifying, identifying mark, then it would pigeonhole us into a group we wouldn't necessarily be normally associated with. Off that, I wanted to ask you guys, how did you interpret Larry's attitude towards Romani people before, but I guess also after, but before and after he becomes a werewolf? I mean, it's a really short movie. With 10 minutes into the movie, he's getting bitten by the wolf. I mean, he mentions them. That's about it. Like, oh, we're going to go see the fortune teller. And he obviously has no real interest in them as a group. Um, He doesn't believe in their rituals or whatnot. Even after he's bitten and he starts to think there might be something wrong with him and he's freaking out. And Maleva, she gives him the charm that's supposed to prevent lycanthropy, which is crazy. Why wasn't Bella wearing that? It's a pretty big plot hole. Anyway, he just immediately, the first thing he does is give it to his girlfriend, who's, a, you know, the fiance of another guy. That I didn't understand, because by that point, he's like, I believe I am a werewolf, and yet I will not believe in this charm that this woman just gave me. But she she's the only one that understands that I'm a werewolf. But that's before he changed, right? That's before the first time he changed. No, that's after the first no, time he after. changed. I didn't really follow the charm plot. I, I don't know if, like, I, I don't, did he have I don't it think before? he killed... No, no. I think she gives know. him the charm. He doesn't wear it. And then he first changes where we get that change scene of his feet when they get furry. And I guess mm. the iconic scene of it, like him turning into a werewolf is actually from one of the sequels. Okay. Then I take it back. He lets her still have it and doesn't take it back from her. <laughs> like by this point, I'd be like, can I please have that back, please? Uh, I'm killing people. I need, <laughs> I need this charm. I mean, it's pretty rude to retrieve a gift after you give it to somebody but it's also rude to hit on someone's fiance well it'll stop you from killing her (laughs) that part that part hey can you please give me that gift back so that i don't kill you oh i'm not threatening you (laughs) Mm. yeah i mean i feel like I don't think he acts specifically bigoted toward Romani, but he doesn't act in any particularly you're right he doesn't really care about them he feels just indifferent to their plight he sees them as like oh what fun we can go get our fortunes told it's kind of a nice bit of foreshadowing that when he first is flirting with gwen in a kind of very creepy way yeah very creepy way very creepy he spies on her and then he approaches her and starts saying all the things he knows about her and he claims that's because he's psychic Mm. and then they go get their fortunes told and then later in the movie he can see the pentagram that predicts that she's his next victim so he actually is psychic well in his defense it is nice for him to tell her that he spy that he can see her through the window like it's not like he sees her and spies on her for weeks he waits a long time to tell her <laughs> he waits until he goes out with her and he's like yo by the way i could see you through your window it it doesn't matter <laughs> that's the creepy part <laughs> yeah he- it would be creepier if he didn't tell her now that we're alone I, in the woods with no one around, let me tell you that I've been spying on you through your window. Oh, I have so many problems with this romance. <laughs> I'm not saying it's not creepy, but if he was just spying on her and he never told her, that would be worse, objective. So, and it's not like he intends to spy on her. He just 
plugs in the telescope and is like, oh, look, I can see her through the window. He goes back. He zooms in. Yeah. Well, yeah, but it's not like that was his intention when he set it up. He's like, oh, look what I found. Oh, wow. And then he goes and looks at it the moon. It was when he zoomed in. Yeah, exactly. Wow. It doesn't matter if it wasn't his intention at first because then he made it his intent. Okay, if it, if it but... wasn't his intention, then he would say, oh, I can see that woman. Turns it away, goes over. Hey, just so you know, I could see you through your window. I turned it away. Didn't see he anything. told her eventually. It's better than not telling her at all. Anyway, it is a nice touch that they start off immediately talking about the moon and how that affects them. And it is kind of cool that the writer uh, related that to the swastika. Yeah, actually, there's another thing in it, too, that was really interesting and like was a ding, ding, ding moment. But I was like, mm-hmm. why haven't I thought of this before? So the original script... We weren't supposed to find out if he actually was a wolfman or not. Oh, really? No? We were left to wonder if it was all in his head, which is really interesting, which is why we see constantly throughout the movie that like battle that we've talked about so much on this podcast of like, am I crazy? Am I like really believing all this stuff, you know, Mm. um, that we see that we see Larry do constantly throughout the film. But one thing that I found was really interesting, which was in this article that we will definitely have to link. David, you sent it. It's um, the Fangoria article by Rich Johnson, um, which is where you're you're getting a lot of these quotes from the author from, I do believe. So the moon used to be associated with mental instability, which is where Mm -hmm. we get the term lunatic from. Mm. Oh, what? What? Yeah. Well, the moon is always associated with like kind of curses and changing of tides and all kinds of things. And like the tide, they also relate to like a woman's tide, which follows a lunar schedule. And that's when they would say she went nuts or like witches would show up and do certain things. And that goes back to ancient Greece and probably before that in different kinds of tides, they would expect kind of magical things to happen and people would get like upset. And even in some cultures, they would like assume that women are more dangerous when they're in their like bloom, which we also saw in a uh, midsummer, for instance, like she could use her menstrual blood for magical mm. properties. So they would lock women up in like rooms and like quarantine them when they're on their menstrual cycle. The what? full moon goes back all the way to hunters and gatherers when uh, the it would allow you to see better at night but that also made it i think more dangerous for predators and whatnot really and there is a weird correlation between an increase in violence with the full moon that i i don't think it's been fully explained there are some theories about it it's a very slight correlation Mm -hmm. it's not like a big deal that's like (laughs) it's like an urban legend kind of it's it's like kind of yeah they sort of talk about it's an urban legend but i think there are actual stats that somewhat back it up yeah a little i've heard that i don't don't know it's interesting though because hunting (laughs) is actually very prevalent in this film um they're constantly talking about it uh Mm. doing it and then actually in the beginning we learned Mm. that um larry's brother died in a hunting accident Mm. and and that's what's kind of interesting about the correlation or the allegory for the jewish experience during world war ii because the Nazis would call the Jews like vermin and rats and stuff, and they would act like they're hunting them. Like if you ever watch Inglorious Bastards, he's the Jew hunter. Uh, I f- forget that ca- that actor's name, but the guy who goes out and finds them and he hunts for them and stuff. And this is a character who felt like he wasn't part of this group. Now he's part of this group and he, and he perceives himself becoming a beast and being pursued in a yes. hunting fashion. That Pangoria article also relates it to uh, a degressing of evolution which 
one of the Nazi things, a lot of that ideology stemmed from eugenics and the idea that we need to cleanse the bloodline. So portraying your Jewish metaphor as something degressing in evolution is appropriate when linked with fucking eugenics. <laughs> exactly. And hence, like, the bestial title. Like, he, he devolves into something subhuman, kind of. And that's the group that they categorized him in. It's an interesting twist on, like, the myth of lycanthropy, which goes back to the first Western writing ever found, actually, which is the Epic of Gilgamesh, hmm. which arguably might be the first werewolf story documented or might not, because Gilgamesh spurned a woman who uh, made advances at him because her last lover was like a lovesick shepherd and she turned him into a wolf. So he was like an unwilling werewolf. But there wasn't the moon cycle angle, so that might not be the first story. The first documented story might actually be the story, I'm, I'm going to mispronounce this word, but it's Niceros or Nicaros. It's, uh, it's a Roman soldier who documented a case in 19, uh, or 61 AD is when the story's from. He was out with another soldier who... When they were in a graveyard, uh, peed around himself in a circle in a graveyard, which is disrespectful to the grave, stripped his clothes off, and then turned into a werewolf and terrorized some people. So that's like a true- I know what I'm doing next weekend. <laughs> yeah, that's a true fucking <laughs> werewolf story. So the idea of uh, turning into a beast and related to like the moon cycles and whatnot is extremely old. So it's kind of cool that they brought back this old myth and are relating it to something- uh, more modern. I mean, now it's 80 years past, but more modern. Yeah, it's very interesting. I'm I'm curious because um, the lore of the werewolf has changed over what seems to be uh, a very, very many years. But this is the first movie that the first werewolf movie that Universal did. There was one werewolf movie before that, but it didn't really like have too much lore setting in it. It was the werewolf in London. That's what you said, David. Werewolf of London. I haven't seen it. Uh, I've heard it's really good, actually. I just cool. haven't seen yeah. it. Um, um, but this, I think this movie set a lot of the lore that we now know as, as canon for werewolves. Yes. It set the silver, it set the pentagram, it set the... The pentagram isn't used that much, but it's still used sometimes. It shows up in American World in London. Um, it set the... I think it set the full moon cycle, actually. I think it did, yeah. And it set the bite that you become on by being bitten. I don't bitten. know if it set the bite in the moon cycle or not. I didn't see that. I was just... All I looked at was when the original werewolf stories came about. And there's definitely a lot of old stories of people turning into wolves. And a lot of them, they act like a beast when they turn into a beast. And they don't all seem to be a linear uh, progression either. I did a lot of my werewolf research several years ago, so I might be off on some of this. But it seemed like the similar myths kind of emerged in several different places, which happens a lot in mythology, like how there are many different ancient religions that have a flood story. Um, it's kind of similar to that. For, for whatever reason, we as a people regularly come up with this idea of humans turning into wolves or other monsters or were bears as well, which I think were called berserks. Well, I, I think it does stem a lot from this like regression though. You know, the thing yeah. that, that we see man standing apart from beasts is something that's constantly questioned. And it's like, I mean, what does keep us from animals? And, you know, around this time, well, I guess not really around this time, from like 1880 to like 1950s, we were really studying a lot of like what makes man different from animals. I mean, Charles Darwin and like figuring out that we stem from apes and possibly other creatures, you know, it makes sense to me that that is um, something that we are constantly exploring in our myths and our lore of like 
what keeps man from becoming a beast and what happens when we do regress to this beast creature. I have more to say, but I think I can hold on to it for comparisons. Yeah. Um, but I could just mention, I pulled out my Greek curses book because I have one. Uh, so in ancient Rome and in Greece, there are a lot of stories of wolfism and werewolfism. There's a group of people called the Nuri who are said to, this is like 1420 BC. So this is way older than the last one I said. They're, they're said to like turn into wolves for a few days once a year. But there's no point of the uh, like full moon cycle that I can see. Although Marcellus Sidites talks about medical lycanthropy and he uses the term lycanthropy or werewolfism, which I think is, uh, oh. I, I think they split uh, like wolf and man. I think it's actually the Greek root to that. Um, and he talks about different ways of like treating it and whatnot. There's a lot of these strange old books, uh, medical uh, practices for treating these kind of like curses and whatnot. One thing I wanted to just mention before we move on out of this, we talked so much about the moon and its importance in this film. Mm -hmm. um, Rob, you mentioned how the moon does have a relation to women. Um, the female characters in this movie are interesting. And yes, they are dated and of the time, but it is really <laughs> interesting that one uh, female character, which we've talked about a lot, is the old Romani woman mm. um, who, as we said, is very clearly ostracized from the town. But in a way, so is Gwen, who is the love interest of this movie. Mm -hmm. Specifically after um, her friend dies and her friend's mother comes into the shop and kind of starts, I don't want to say slut shaming because Gwen didn't fucking do anything. But at the same time, it's like kind of ostracizing Gwen for going out with someone who isn't her fiance. Though at that time, she knows nothing about if they're like a love interest or anything. And she was with her friend, you know, like it was like, how dare you just like go do something social with another man at all right. and started blaming her for, yeah. for her death. Yeah. That is messed up the blame and everything. But I mean, to be fair, it is super suspicious that she's going off with this guy in the middle of the woods. And there's definitely something going on chemistry wise between them. That is so painfully obvious to everyone else around. Yeah. It's not, not the greatest for her. Um, but at the same time, she didn't kill her friend. Like we don't have to blame her for that. <laughs> no. Definitely not. If anyone's to blame, it's like Larry, but for taking around these <laughs> shady characters, you know? No, if anyone's to blame, it's Bella, who it's is Bella. a werewolf, but is still like, I a full moon, just like, oh yeah, I'll read your fortune. Oh, look, there's full moon. Eh, don't worry about it. Oh shit, I'm about to kill you. No, <laughs> run away. Ah, uh, too late. Uh, it's also interesting that Lord Cheney turns into like a wolf man, but Bella is just a wolf. And I don't think that's ever yeah. broached. Like there's no reason for that. Maybe it's because he was a wolf man for longer. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I also wonder if that's just like further differentiating him from this other group of people who are like mm. not the same as mm. him because he's like more human being part of this like other group maybe. that wasn't seen as ostracized. You know what I mean? So maybe that's why he was like stuck in the in-between state and he wasn't fully passed over into this other group? I mean, this was something that I was interested in, was um, while literally in the context of the movie, he turns into a werewolf because he was bitten by Bella, mm -hmm. you can also interpret it as he's turning into a werewolf because he killed a Romani person, mm. and now he must also suffer the fate of being persecuted as they are. That's interesting. Maybe. That's interesting. I hadn't thought about it that way. Yeah, maybe that's like a karma thing. But speaking of karma, our next film has to do directly with karma and also has perhaps a creature whose features change throughout. Devin Shepard, why don't you give us the rundown? 
Ed Harley lives a simple life. He lives with his young son, Billy, and their dog, and runs a small store off an old dirt road in the middle of the country. One day, a group of privileged teens from out of town stop at the store, and so begins Ed's end. As the teens begin to set up their dirt bikes outside the store, Ed goes on a run, leaving little Billy all alone. You know where this is going. The little boy's dog runs into the hills, the boy chasing it right into the path of a dirt bike. Billy is struck and killed. Most of the teens flee, leaving Ed to come back to his dying child and no one to take the blame. Grief-stricken, Ed recalls the lore of an old witch who lives nearby, Haggis. Perhaps she can bring the child back. Ed takes his son's body to the witch, but she cannot bring him back to life. Instead, Ed chooses vengeance, and with the witch's guidance, brings life to a demon called Pumpkinhead. And Pumpkinhead goes a-slashing, picking off the teenagers one by one. Before he's through, however, Ed has a change of heart. They don't all need to die, I guess, right? He begins to help the teens fight off Pumpkinhead, but soon realizes the only way to kill Pumpkinhead is to kill Ed himself. You see, when he brought the creature to life, he imprinted it with his blood and is connected to the creature. It is his fuel and his vengeance that keeps the creature alive. Ed bravely shoots himself and ends the Pumpkinhead's rampage. This is obviously Pumpkinhead, directed by Stan Winston, written by Mark Patrick Caducci, Gary Garani, and also story by Stan Winston and Richard C. Wyman. It's based on Pumpkinhead by Ed Justin. I totally did not realize that you were talking about Pumpkinhead until you got to that title reveal. I thought you were going to say this is Hellraiser or something like that. <laughs> I'm sorry. Did I, was I saying Pumpkinhead? I meant Pinhead. 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 Oh! <laughs> um, yeah, so obviously, at its most transparent, this movie is about revenge. So the first question that I want to ask you guys is, do you think Ed Harley was at all justified in summoning the monster. Well, he definitely, uh, it's so easy to uh, sympathize with this character because you know he's out and about, these assholes coming to town, fucking around, not being safe, and they kill his kid. And it's 100% their fault. Like, the kid runs out to get a dog. You shouldn't have been, you shouldn't be riding a dirt bike. First off, you're going to run someone over like that. You obviously don't have proper control because dirt bikes are pretty easy to control. And they were drunk. Uh, that guy was drinking, he said, yeah. He was also driving right before then. But no, I mean, he kind of knows what's going to happen with Pumpkinhead. But he's grief-stricken, and that's what makes it so tragic. It makes you feel as if he's not in full control. Like, he is, like, predetermined. He's a doomed character from he's a child. Like, Pumpkinhead is kind of stamped on him from when he's a little kid, his own son's age, actually. And it, it ends with him becoming the next iteration of Pumpkinhead because they rebury his body at the end. So... Like, the justification isn't necessarily, like, as much as the curse was already on him before he even took up the mantle. Mm. I, I don't necessarily think he's blameworthy, but he's definitely not justified. Yeah, I I agree. He's not justified. I, I can definitely empathize with him um, from that. On the other way, like, these kids aren't going to be punished. Like, this, um, I think it was Joel who actually uh, was the one who drove the bike that struck the kid. Um, there were two motorbikes, two people riding them. The first one saw the kid, got out of the way just in time, but the second one came and struck Billy and killed him. And Joel is a complete fucking asshole. You don't like him at any point in the movie. And like, yeah, I kind of want to see this dick die. Why the fuck did it take so long for him to die? But the other time, like, we do establish these are privileged 
kids that they come from, you know, maybe the city, but definitely not the country. He does feel very privileged and a little prideful that he like gets to be treated than everybody else. Um, we learned that Joel uh, is on probation from striking another person with his car. So he has done this in his past and obviously like has not been punished enough to to change. So I think, yeah, I don't I don't think that Ed is justified, but I definitely think that something needs to happen. And it's clear that like nothing in society is doing enough to to punish Joel. Um, yeah, I don't agree that Joel wouldn't have been punished. I think he pretty clearly would have, especially since that's why he's so afraid that he his, his immediate reaction is to run because he's like, I have been drinking, I am on probation, like I'm going to go to jail for a very long time. Right. But to sorry to to clarify though, but we, he has been punished from this before, from the same act before. Yes. And it very clearly didn't do anything to we don't know the specifics we just know there was an accident we don't know if he hit someone right. or if there was someone in the car with him but yeah no he hit a he hit a girl they they say he hit a girl we don't know if it was with a car or like didn't they just say a girl was hurt i think they said he hit a girl okay either way though same point <laughs> yeah yeah he has done similar things before this is the first time we think someone's died from it but he has definitely engaged in similar reckless behavior before and he is unsympathetic for like 99% of his screen time. He's mean to the locals. He's an ass to his friends. He literally like kidnaps some of his friends when they want to speak out against him. He abuses his girlfriend. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, he's a yeah, total he's scumbag. I also think that he would have gotten away scot-free. The only thing I will say in his defense is that when he sees Pumpkinhead, mm -hmm. Almost immediately, like, people are dying. He goes out and wants Pumpkinhead to take him instead. That's the only thing I can say in his defense, is that he does try to sacrifice himself to save his friends. That I actually like Joel's character. I think he's well-written. I do, too. He's not a mustache-twirling villain. Yeah, but if you're yeah. around um, these kind of unhinged, reckless young guys, especially ones with, like, a substance abuse problems— they tend to get hyper-emotional and then hyper-reckless and hyper-egoistic, like, all within a very short span of time. And it's yep. almost like they're bipolar. I mean, they're not, but they act similar. And I think he does that in a way. Like, he'll at one moment, like, hurt his own friend and then sacrifice himself in the next breath. And I think he does a good job of portraying that, at least in the writing. The actual character, the acting-wise, not that great. I object to the use of bipolar there, but other than that, I agree with what you said. <laughs> I think Joel is written very realistically. He is scared and panicked and does a lot of really fucked up shit in pure emotional response. He's not thinking things out. He's not trying to be malicious. Just everything he does is terrible. He's a cocky motherfucker. He thinks he, he's just he's just cocky. And I don't think any of the other friends really did much wrong. Um, I mean, Steve was engaged in similar behavior and is kind of just lucky that he didn't wasn't the one to kill the kid. Steve isn't that great, although at least he stayed behind to confront Ed, which is a little bit. Yeah, it's also, it was just purely an accident. Yeah, Maggie tried to save the kid. She tried to stop him from running in and failed. Tracy tries to call the police. Chris tries to stand up to Joel Kim doesn't really do anything. She, she She's his girlfriend. She just says he's on probation and then she dies. Uh, <laughs> Poor girl. 
Yeah, it, it, <laughs> Joel really does drag all the other characters into it. And like as a revenge story, it really shows all the collateral damage that happens in these things. And I think part of it might actually be commenting on like the feuds between families almost. You know, if there's a blood feud between like two houses, so many people get hurt within like the mm-hmm. uh, the attempt to gain vengeance, right? And all these people on the periphery are all damaged. They really didn't have that much to do with everything. And the movie does a good job of showing all that. And what's cool is Lance Henriksen's character is instantly aware of this fact because he's forced to see what he's done, which is cool because that's how you know that it's a curse right away. It doesn't just happen and he's allowed to experience it from afar but he's right. forced to engage in the vengeance himself yeah so you don't think anyone else is implicit to what happened uh no it was a hundred percent joel but also i mean it was an accident it, joel like stuck around and dealt with the consequence which we kind of get the idea that there really aren't cops here like we're in like the backwoods per se of like the right. rust belt you know? right so I guess with that question, I was thinking, considering the conversations that we had in our last episode, or that you guys had in the last episode about a slasher, does this fall into the slasher category for you? Or does it not because those characters aren't necessarily directly implicit to the tragedy that happens? Uh, there's Yeah, it's totally a slasher. No, it's a creature feature. But creature feature and slashers follow a similar timeline. Um there's no real sex, though. I mean, like, it's missing a few key points of, like, a slasher other than young people getting killed off one by one. That's kind of it. So I, I kind of missed this point in the last episode, so I don't know if it really fits now. But when you were talking about slasher and neo-slasher, what was interesting about that is that by attaching the neo-prefix to the genre, there are multiple types of genres. There are genres that describe plot. There are genres that describe mood. There are genres that describe historical context, etc. And by tapping the Neo onto it, you're actually changing a slasher from being a descriptor of a plot to a descriptor of a historical context. That you are saying that a true slasher is something that came out during this decade and still fits a lot of these conventions, but because it came out in this decade, it is necessarily relating to the culture in which it emerged which would have been a great if i had thought of that when we were recording the last episode because it totally related to everything we were saying but it relates to the pumpkin head a little bit as well because i think this is a slasher movie i think the only way that you can argue it's not is that's not a human villain and i don't think that matters um <laughs> yeah but it's also missing some of like the key components of like what make a slasher a slasher i mean it does follow the same plot line as like i know what you did last summer but there's no mystique of like who done it it's strictly like a monster movie in the same vein as alien slashers don't need a who done it there there seems to usually be that alien is a slasher <laughs> you think alien's a slasher yeah Alien is totally a slasher. No, it's a creature feature. Well, there's also, I think the <laughs> argument here for Pumpkinhead versus Alien as a slasher is that Pumpkinhead glorifies the kills in a way that Alien didn't, right? So a lot of the kills in mm. Alien happen off screen and the appear is like, what's happening? Although like, no, even like Black Christmas, the villains coming through and you get the POV of him like killing people, that a lot of it is like the gore hound in you like wanting that. And I think Pumpkinhead taps into that. Actually, my critique later is going to be it doesn't tap into that enough. But the central thesis is like, this is a cool monster. How do we kill it? And I think that is what defines it as a creature feature versus a slasher. Although there's a lot of overlap. Yeah, I think I think it's both of those things. Yeah, but no, I I think that's the hard to me. That's the hard distinction. 
like I think both are similar genres, but they're different. I don't think there are any hard distinctions in the genre. Yeah, yeah, I think I they're they're too similar to say there are distinctions, but I think one thing that this film does the the main thing that we are talking about here with the vengeance and Pumpkinhead does fit into the slasher uh, parameters. I think a lot more. Yeah, it's killing them off one by one. To me, that's the most important thing for a slasher movie is that it kills them off one by one. Really, Pumpkinhead is a very similar setup to Friday Thirteenth, which we talked about in the last episode because. It's about a parent revenging their child mm-hmm. and going after young people and murdering them off one by one, pretty much. But I don't know, the one by one bit, I don't know if that's enough for me to call it a slasher. I feel like a slasher has like a general feel to it. And since Lance Henriksen is such a central character, probably the main character, and it's from his perspective, I think that kind of alters it into something else. I I will also argue against my last point. The thing that makes this a creature feature, however, is the thematics of everyone who dies is, I'm going to say city folk. Um, Yeah, they kill off city folk. So I think the other thing here is like, instead of killing them off one by one, it's also like, it's, it's, it's a giant theme of like wanting to murder a specific kind of person for being that type of person. Because as we have said, they're not implicit in the death directly. And Pumpkinhead kind of feels like they're just killing them because they're like, just not the country folk and not from around that area and don't understand this way of life, really. There is an other in this movie, uh, whether that is the city or whether that is the country. It's kind of up for you to decide. It's definitely told through a perspective of the country, although the city folk are also given some perspective scenes through Tracy. But Ed is clearly the main protagonist. But I also feel like most of the audience was probably at least meant to see themselves in the city folk. And there's almost like this masochistic, like, yes, come after me, pumpkin head. <laughs> I agree. And... I mean, a a big thing that I saw from this film and I want to talk about uh, in in another point later on, but um, religion is very prevalent and it almost feels like throughout this film, the country folks way of life, especially the religion kind of feels threatened by the city folks um, ideologies. And I think that is very prevalent in what was going on in the 80s at that time. I mean, we're seeing like a huge influx of like this yuppie city culture that does seem to start to influence the country folk and kind of like makes them, you know, look bad at in, in, in media. So I agree. I think we're supposed to see through the country folk in this film. Yeah, it's undeniably uh, sympathetic towards the city folk. And I think Lance Henriksen and the movie itself does a really good job of portraying that kind of like uh, sympathy. But I think it's kind of like an analysis of the Rust Belt region at large and their decline from the time period when the Rust Belt was called the Foundry, which was like the industrial center point of America when they used to make a lot of things. And then as those industries shut down, everyone became much, much poorer and they became known as the Rust Belt. It actually changed the name of the region at large, which- What region is this specifically for those who've never heard the word before? Well, the Rust Belt isn't a hard and fast region, but it's basically in between New York and the Midwest. Like, so Pennsylvania and a lot of areas around there, like Kentucky would be part of it. It's also like an ethnographic section of like Irish, Scottish uh, immigrants Mm. over there. So that's like a giant uh, ethnicity in the US. It's actually considered its own subgroup. If you were to break down, there's nine ethnographic sections in America. And one of them is the people of the foundry or the Rust Belt to consider. And they're also one of the poorest uh, segments of the US population. And what time was this happening around? I think the major decline was like at the end of the 70s through the 80s. And it's pretty much declined more since then and gotten worse. And we see this in the 
reality of the movie because it starts off with Lance Henriksen as a child in a full structural family unit with like two parents and him as a child. Mm. And it seems like in the beginning when it goes to him as an adult, he's worse off than they are. And also the people look dirtier. Like everyone's covered in dust, rust, dusty. Now I know I'm going off like a very small section of the movie, but that's something I noticed. And I think you're supposed to notice that decline. Yeah. It was a recent term at the time. The term was only penned in 1984. It was the Democratic presidential candidate who ran in 1984, penned the term during a debate with, you guys know who I'm about to say. (laughs) Ronald Reagan, of course. (laughs) Interestingly, I want to point this out. Um, A a good book for an analysis of this that I know is kind of heated is like Hillbilly Elegy, but it's from someone who grew up in that region. The Rust Belt was historically Democratic, and it was around the time of Reagan that they switched to Republican. And it was also uh, predating that time was the decline of the Rust Belt when the money pretty much just left the region altogether. And they've arguably declined even further since then, which I mentioned earlier. So I think this movie is kind of showing the inevitable like doom-seeking that some people might feel from uh, highly impoverished regions like that through Lance Henriksen's character who is worse off than his parents. Not only does he lose his wife, presumably both his parents are dead, also his child dies, and then he damns himself. He is a truly doomed character. And I really like the tragic aspect of this film. I agree with a lot of that. I do want to just mention, I don't think that the movie ever specifies where in America it's all set. It was filmed in the deserts of California. But I do agree with you that I think it is meant to be set in that region. There's a lot of imagery that calls to mind that region. So I do agree with relating it to that. Yeah. And we can also say, real quick, Devin, sorry. We can also say that if it isn't specifically within that region, it might be facing the same socioeconomic problems. And therefore, it's similar enough. That's what I was going to say. It was like, I think you're spot on to relate it to the Rust Belt. For me personally, I didn't see it as taking place there, um, mainly because these are places, there are places like that in every state, um, even so in California. Mm. And these characters, like, they don't have accents. They don't have, like, certain things that point out that they are in that area. So I think, like, there is an important universality to where in the United States this can specifically be set, um, which I think is important for the messages of this movie is that universality, that it's not going to be like, oh, that's happening over in Pennsylvania, therefore we don't need to worry about it. I, I disagree. I think that it is kind of commenting on how people are dismissing the struggles of this town, that the the city folk come in and they point out to some with like a lot of hair and they go, ah, ha, ha, and they make fun of him and whatnot. I think it is very much that the city folk see this as a place you just pass through, you fuck around, and then you keep going and you never think about it again. Right, but what I'm saying is that there's those kinds of towns in every state, though. Yes, there are, but yeah. I don't think it's universality. There are towns like that all over, but yeah. But that that's what I'm saying saying though is that like i it isn't specifically they don't say where it is because i think it's important that this can be wherever in the united states and that it is these towns specifically that we need to look at that are being affected by what's going on okay And, and i think that's to the benefit of the film at large because since it's not specific to a region it becomes sort of like an ageless concept of a down and out backward town in america You know, it doesn't necessarily have to be in the Midwest or the Rust Belt or the Dust Bowl. Like, it could be anywhere. It could be in New England. There are places like this that are kind of forgotten. And yeah, I want to relate this to uh, your point, Devin, is that um, 
it seems like this town is stuck in, in a backwards religious sphere where they rely on older times. And if you go into witchcraft, a lot of places like West Virginia, for instance, way back in the day, people would perform a lot of different kinds of witchcraft. They would like cut out knots and trees and plug them up and stuff. And there's all these really cool stories about the witches of West Virginia or whatnot that you can read about, which is like 70 or 80 years ago, it was really happening a lot. But places like this have kind of been like passed by by America that have no law enforcement and are kind of like the Wild West. The people there might be seen as like relying on these old forms of justice and like religious justice is a very strong concept to the human condition because it passes by the means of man. And I think uh, this is kind of a cool way of tapping into that, similar to how it was done with the Romani people in The Wolfman. They tapped into a kind of like old school, bygone, uh, mythical energy. Mm. But in yeah. Pumpkinhead, it's it's Judeo-Christian specifically. It's not necessarily ex- exotic. It's just more ancient. It's really just Christian specifically. Well, it's not necessarily because uh, like in Jewish culture, there's the myth of the golem which is also a vengeful spirit that attacks people. So Yeah, I, I see the comparison between Pumpkinhead and the Golem. I had thought of that, actually. That's interesting. I like that. So did you see this film as a pro-Christian film then? No. Uh, no. Weird. I totally saw it as like Christian propaganda. <laughs> did you really? really? Uh, can you explain? Elaborate, please. Yeah. I, I, it just kind of felt like we were meant to, oh, I don't, I was about to say demonize the demon. Um, but really, that's what we were meant to do throughout this entire film. I don't know. I feel like to me, so many parts of Ed's character were like the definition of what I've heard a lot of churches call like the good Christian. And I think like ultimately his decision to change at the end and sacrifice himself. And to me, that was everything of like, oh, that's the, that's him realizing how he can be a good Christian is that just like, you know, f- to forgive, to forgive his neighbor. That, that, I mean, that, that was really like the big thing for me. And they're, you know, they're going to the church that is gone, unfortunately. And they're like, oh, hopefully, you know, we'll be saved here. They're not. Um, there is a lot of religious imagery throughout the film. I had quotes, but I, it would take me a second to find them. Yeah, no, there's definitely a lot of Im- religious imagery throughout this film. But I saw it as depicting the weakness of Christianity. Mm. That like there's the character Maggie is one of the city folk who is hyper religious, which we barely see, but it is referenced that she's hyper religious. She's the one who like goes into complete shock and is freaking out the entire time. And then Steve uh, brings up the cross around her neck and says, this has always given you power in your in your times of weakness. So use it now or something like that. That. And then they both die. That's true. OK, that's true. They both die immediately. And and the, the the quote, I actually did find it, the quote that I have actually kind of negates what I was going for. Because in the beginning, when we have the flashback, um, when Ed is a little boy, the guy who's being hunted by Pumpkinhead knocks on Ed's father's door and Ed's father won't let him in. And the victim mm-hmm. says, what kind of Christian are you for God's sake? Yeah. Which I guess does prove more to your point, David. Also, I found the other quote of like why I think these privileged shits wouldn't get punished. Um, they do say the worst you can get is a slap on the wrist, but that's whatever. <laughs> Yeah, Yeah. I mean, yeah, helping your neighbor in this movie means that you will be killed as well. Pumpkinhead carves a cross into Maggie's face. He's just tormenting her. Uh, When they go to the church, that doesn't mean anything. Like, Christianity is useless to them. He kills a guy with a cross, 
at the church. He literally picks it up and kills him with it. Amazing. Ed goes to the witch, and my favorite line in the movie is like, God damn you! And she says, he already has. And I'm like, that's amazing. It's the best cheesy line I've ever heard. By the way, that is the worst scene of the movie, directing-wise. But it's so so good. It is so (laughs) fucking campy. I can't handle it. I love the camp. (laughs) Yeah, I I don't necessarily... I do see it as kind of like critical, but I also think it's the idea this is like God's forgotten land. So they have to rely Mm. on like occult imagery because there is no like priestly body. There is a church, but it's abandoned. Like this is truly a town that is like left behind. And because of that, the Antichrist has been able to fester and maintain control. Mm. I like that. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, Haggis is... Haggis is the witch. That's the name of the witch. What a terrible name for a witch, by the way, too. What do you think of her character? How do you think she factors into all of this? Oh, other than the fact that she's the only woman in this godforsaken town? They're like, oh, the woman. (laughs) None of the men have wives. (laughs) Well, they're also like little girls. There, there's a uh, Mayan Bialik is. One oh yeah, of because them. they're not sexual yet. They're not. They're too young to be sexualized. So they're not. You know, they're fine. And uh, there's no women in this town. No, sorry, I just had to point that out. It was really. <laughs> but it is saying something that the only woman, the only older woman in town, is a witch. But as we have talked about many times, not only in this episode but many previous episodes, there's a clear reason why women are witches yeah it was it's the moon cycle obviously um also the way she makes pumpkin head is fucking awesome and how she's like leave the kid here when he goes out to go dig up pumpkin head that's fucked up like i don't know what she does to the body we have no idea she does something the dead kid has to be there for a reason yeah it's sad can we stop watching horror movies where kids die it's like this one was really tough Hmm. but david please tell us your uh, your opinions on haggis the way you were describing it as like a town that got abandoned made me kind of feel like, you know, Pumpkinhead's not always there. He's a creature that Haggis summons. So maybe she is kind of the Antichrist figure. I also really like that comparison to the Golem, though. But the Golem is more heroic, kind of anti-heroic than villainous in most Jewish folklore, that it does defend the Jews. So... That's not really what Pumpkinhead is doing. <laughs> oh, we should mention that this is Stan Winston's directorial debut, and he's the special effects mastermind behind the Terminator, Aliens, and a bunch of other gigantic budget movies you've seen. This movie had a budget of $3 million, which you can kind of see, but it looks really good considering the budget. You will also notice that Pumpkinhead looks a little bit similar to a xenomorph at times. Just a little yeah. bit. He also takes on the features of Lance Henriksen as the film goes on, which leads me to my main comparative point and why I decided to pair these two movies this week was that we're dealing with ancient curses in where main characters trade their humanity or lose it and become uh, a beast of vengeance of some kind. Now, I wanted to ask you both, what do you think is so scary about curses, these types of curses, and why do you think they've been in the zeitgeist of human behavior for thousands and thousands of years? I think for me, one of the main things that makes curses so scary is something that Kurt Sodmak was talking about um, when he was creating Wolfman. Wolfman was originally entitled Destiny um, because for him, this whole thing was about a cursed destiny. Once Larry is cursed, his destiny, it's it's determined. His future is determined and there's no way that he can escape it, um, which I think is proven throughout the film of the Wolfman. But I think it also, in a sense, is proven in Pumpkinhead. Rob, you were talking about earlier how it feels like Ed was kind of cursed from the beginning 
when he first laid eyes on Pumpkinhead. It was then that, you know, it was his destiny to recall upon Pumpkinhead and to eventually die that way. Um, and you, you were talking so much about this, both of them, Larry and Ed, being tragic figures. And I think they're tragic because we know how these movies are going to end. They're both going to die. That is the curse that is placed upon them. And I think there is this, like, because they don't have control over their future and there's no way to escape it, that is what makes this, what makes curses essentially scary. No, I think that's really interesting. And it, it also speaks to the idea that like anyone can succumb to this curse. It's kind of outside of your control. And since both movies have to deal with like a uh, premonition and like predetermined uh, nature of these curses, there's no, they're inescapable. And it's not through your own fault. Like your humanity is stolen via the circumstance. So whether or not that circumstance is war and genocide or socioeconomic collapse these types of curses like speak to the social situations that people might find themselves and i think that's such a strong source of fear because since it's a force and not a figure itself we can apply it to whatever the situation is it's almost like the environment itself is what you should fear and it it supersedes the natural so there's no way to escape it and i think that's scary and i think we can apply that in any age and that's why it's so cool. And uh, the idea that you lose your humanity also, that you're succumbing to this influence also transcends time periods. And to me, that's why curses are such a uh, vibrant source of fear throughout societies. Yeah, totally. I think losing your humanity is a is a big thing. Every day we have to make choices that you know, put us in uncomfortable positions, but put us in more humanized ones. And there's always that constant fear of like, you know, what if I'm going to regress to something that is not societally acceptable? And mm. I think that correlates to, to these monsters. Yeah, losing your humanity is a big thing, which I think anyone can probably relate to um or else i'm just weird like that <laughs> yeah no me uh, too yes <laughs> yeah no i think it's cool it's losing control but exactly losing control yeah. um and that's largely what the werewolf myth speaks to that he is a normal guy for most of the time but then a few nights a month he transforms into this uncontrollable rage monster that is going to kill and act completely against what he actually feels and his actual values. We see that again in American Werewolf in London, which also taps into the Nazi imagery a little bit. Uh, we see that again in Pet Cemetery. It's anything where you lose your inhibitions, pretty much. Yeah. It's very common in werewolves, uh, but it's common in a lot of other curses as well. Yeah, I think some vampire movies probably tap into this. Like vampires are like a source of like decadence from the curse. So like all your yep. inhibitions go away. They're like sex. It's basically like food and sex is yep. the driving force of vampires. And those are like our two most basic desires that as humans, we kind of come up with a bunch of different reasons. Maybe they're right. Maybe they're just totally false. We don't know. And that's kind of scary to forego those two basic desires for other things which provide more meaning like friendship yeah. or you know social advancement or wealth or love or anything like that these kind of like more idyllic concepts that make us human kind of taps into while not strictly a curse movie it also isn't not one uh daniel isn't real which we talked about last year and largely discussed mental illness along with it mm. um that and the evil within 
again, just that fear that you will become something monstrous and the, the fear of yourself, really. I think Daniel isn't real is a really good example because it's kind of like a personified curse yeah. that takes you over and it makes him lose his inhibitions. What is he? He becomes uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger's kid, right? That the whole <laughs> yes. idea. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Patrick you know, Schwarzenegger. Yeah. yeah, he becomes Schwarzenegger. Yeah, yeah which is cool. That's like, a curse. Man, um... <laughs> but also in relation... To these movies, it's something that I hadn't thought of before I watched both of these movies again, but now I'm sort of kind of realizing that a lot of these more traditional curse movies have the element of an other within them, that the curse comes from a people not your own. The city folks are cursed by this backwater Midwestern town or wherever it is. The the Lon Chaney Jr., who is a nobleman, he his dad owns a motherfucking castle, uh, goes to Romani people and walks away a werewolf and is now going to be persecuted as well. That it is almost this idea of contamination with something not your own. I, I find that really interesting because something that I feel like isn't explored enough in the film, but what makes Larry Talbot such an interesting and fascinating tragic character is in the beginning, it's it's a son coming home to this life that he left. And he has a conversation mm. with his father and the father is like, essentially describes it as a curse, actually. He says, you know, it, it's well known in the family that the the older brother, I forget what he says about the older brother, but the older brother does one thing and the younger brother resents his destiny to essentially not be the, the the heir to the to the fortune or to the the manor essentially right mm -hmm. which in a way is is a curse on that own family but there is this like but larry ran away from that you know like he he tried controlling it and ran away from this destiny but it still didn't work yeah so in a way larry never wanted to be a part of this town in the first place much like how you were mm -hmm. saying david how like he didn't necessarily want to to join the Romani. Like it's 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 that constant thing of like he didn't feel he didn't feel like a Romani. He didn't feel like a Talbot. He didn't feel like a, a human in this town. He felt like something else, and so kept constantly trying to run away from it, only to keep coming back to where he, exactly he needed to be. Yeah, I like what you're saying. I kind of skipped over in my summary the part where his brother died because I wasn't sure how to tie it in, and I feel like we kind of have skipped over talking about it, but. That discussion of him being the younger sibling and having this younger sibling inferiority complex and then leading to the end of the movie when uh, the father, Claude Rains, shout out to the Invisible Man, we covered it last year, you guys should check that out, uh, murders his own son, unknowingly even, that he's so inferior, he's so overlooked that his father kills him without even noticing. There's a really cool inverse about what you're saying in that between these two films, how Claude Rains kills his own son, which is in a way this curse has stolen his future and yep. he's killed it off himself. Whereas Pumpkinhead is actually a curse against society stealing his future because he feels like his whole town has gone away. His kid has been killed. And this is his way of getting back against the rich folk who he's othering for his situation. Like he's, he's marking them because they represent the things that he no longer has, which is opportunity. So Pumpkinhead is a way of taking the past and to use your wrath against your failure for opportunity. And I think that that's kind of cool because the movies are really kind of saying two different things about curses here. Yeah. And I think they're kind of the opposite. 
Whereas the curse is holding you back in the Wolfman, it's more just vengeful and Pumpkinhead. It isn't holding you back or not. It, it, it's a rage against being held back. Yeah, it's it's more of a fight for for control over something that you've lost already. And and where and the the werewolf lore feels a little more something uh, new. It, it feels like a newer curse. Yeah. So now it's time for my favorite part of the show, which is the review section, where we review each film on a one through four bone rating system. Starting us off this week with the Wolfman is Devin Shepard. I fucking loved this movie. I like Woo! it's it's one of my top movies that we've watched for the pod. I don't know what it was. I was just so into this movie. I mean, I know kind of what it was. Um, Lon Chaney Jr. Incredible, incredible. Claude Rains yet again, fucking stealer. Like these performances. There's a reason why they're fucking legends. And this movie was so deep. I loved all the themes in it. I loved all the characters. I love how complex it was. It's an hour and change. And it's like, it's just so good. It's it, there. There's so much going on and it, but yet it's so simple. I thought the effects for the time were fucking killer. Like, I think they do a lot of smart things. The creature design though, like, yes, dated. Come on. It's fucking awesome. If I, if I were alive in the 1940s and I saw this movie, I'd be like, that that's pretty dope. And I think, Lon Chaney Jr. spent like six hours in the chair or some shit like that, like three to six hours in the chair. Like it's got to be one of those first movies that they really like spent that much time in in the chair for. So I think that should be applauded. I think the screenwriting was really strong. I think the directing was really strong. I loved everything about this movie. So four bones for me. Wow. Nice. I'll go next. Um, So I, I do like this movie. I think it's a little bit campy. It's a little bit dated, but it's fun. And it's an, an hour and some change, which makes it way better for me. I love being able to just sit down and in a very short amount of time, kind of consume a film. Uh, and this one is definitely one like rife for consumption. I can't really get into the Wolfman's look. That shirt he's wearing and the pants just look so kind of like silly. But it is fun. And it has some like great one-liners, uh, pretty much all from Claude Rains. When he's talking to him, he's like, we're all amateurs. And when it comes to astrology, there's only one expert. And he's like, all right, God, that's cool. But it's a cool way of saying it. Um, yeah, and, and talking about it, I, I hadn't realized until I really analyzed this film, because I had seen it once before when I was a little kid, that it had such a strong metaphor for like xenophobia and the Jewish experience during World War II, which is really interesting. And I think it explores that in a pretty good way. And I think it's rife for analysis. And I guess kind of all these old like universal horror films, at least the better ones, have these deep thematic uh, through lines that make them really interesting to watch today. And this with the camp and like the game mentality that I was talking about earlier of all the male male characters and how they deal with the drama is fun and kind of lighthearted. They do have these deeper meanings throughout. Uh, that said, I mean, it's definitely not one of my favorites. Uh, and I'm going to be a little lame. I'm going to give it two and a half stars. David, what do you think? Yeah, I love this movie. I've seen this once or twice before, uh, a long time ago, though. Um, back when I initially watched all the Universal monster movies, this is my favorite one uh, by a lot. Um, the Invisible Man was close. After rewatching, I do think that I slightly prefer The Invisible Man, that this one doesn't hold up quite as well. It's just, it's a little slow, despite its short runtime. Uh but I love the character of Larry Talbot. I love Lon Chaney Jr.'s performance, that he's very everyman-y. And I love the makeup by Jack Pierce, who is the horror legend of this time period. He did all of these movies. He did Dracula. He did Frankenstein. He did The Invisible Man. He did The Mummy. He did 
all of the Universal Monster movies, and this was now 10 years later, he comes back to do Lon Chaney Jr. as the Wolfman. And I just, I, I really like werewolves a lot. <laughs> werewolves are like, I, I've always really loved that myth and enjoyed that myth, and this one is so much to credit for that. Um, it's no American World in London, but American World in London wouldn't exist without the Wolfman. So I'm going to give it two and a half bones as well. Oh, wow. Devin, uh, why don't you tell us what you think of Pumpkinhead? Yeah, Pumpkinhead, uh, not my favorite uh, in comparison. I think this movie for me, it was it was just very slow, um, very in a way derivative of everything else from this time period. I felt like you knew what was going to happen. Um, nothing was really crazy. The, the thing that makes so many of these movies around this time that are similar, what makes them stand out from the other is the awesome kills. I felt this one didn't have awesome kills. Um, really disappointed in that. I liked the creature design. I liked pumpkin head. Um, I wish he was a little scarier and not so xenomorphy. I feel like it was a, a creature that we had seen before. Again, another thing that makes movies around this time stand out is their creature design and having something really unique. And I, I didn't think that was so. I must really say, as as Rob said it several times throughout the episode, Lance Hendrickson's performance, fucking killer. Um, and I think that that character was so well done. And I, for that, I applaud this movie. Um, I think the other teenagers not really into um yeah not a, not a lot like really like held my attention throughout the film so i'm just gonna give it two bones rob what was your rating what was my rating what was rob's review uh i i actually agree with a lot of your points i feel like the biggest problem with this movie is the lack of creative kills like what the fuck if you're gonna do a creature feature with like slasher roots or a slasher movie and this is my same problem with like x do some awesome kills like Pumpkinhead should have been ripping someone's face off or their head or something or cutting them in half. I want to see like guts and entrails and all that shit. Uh, X still did that too. But I did like it when he killed the guy with the cross. And I really think the movie has a strong setup uh, and has a really cool ending. I like how you had to kill Lance Henriksen to kill the monster. That was cool. And I like the way they did the changing of the makeup. Uh, Lance Henriksen becomes more demonic and the creature becomes more human as it goes on. And those are awesome. I also really enjoy when Pumpkinhead shows up to kill people. It feels like a demonic force is kind of coming in, like a storm comes in, like the wind picks up and is like blowing and trees are rustling in the fog. It, it feels like something inescapable, like an unstoppable force, uh, a demonic corruption coming to steal your soul. And I really love that. And I, I love the story. Uh, I think the metaphor for uh, disenfranchised uh, U.S. regions railing against um you know city folk and like the economic uh progression that has passed them by is, is a strong theme i just feel like there were a lot of setbacks like the acting's not great there are some like blocking issues with like actors and kind of the whole mid section is held back by not really interesting creative kills and i, I feel like this is a movie that could do with a good remake actually and i think a modern remake done with like a good director could be really interesting you know uh raise the budget to 30 million instead of 3 million and you probably have something really good so i'm gonna give it i really love pumpkin head so two and a half but it probably should get two but i'm gonna give it two and a half they're doing a remake they oh, are they doing are. a remake oh no uh, shit. reboot i don't same know exactly difference. it's it's not going to be the same plot as the original but we we don't know that much details about it i'm hesitant depends on 
they need to do practical effects. If they do CGI, then it's that's they don't just CGI. Yeah, if they CGI it, it's probably gonna look like shit. Um, David, what do you think about it? So I've gotta be honest, I've seen this movie once before, and at that time I really didn't like it. I thought the monster was cool. I really liked the effects a lot, but I thought the characters were one dimensional and uninteresting, all of them, including Lance Henriksen. Uh I found the plot to be just just boring and stringing along and and nothing much really happened of any interest. And at that time, I would have given it probably one and a half bones or something. And I really wasn't looking forward to watching again for this pod. But I'm glad that I did watch it again for this pod, because I don't know what the fuck I was thinking last time. This time was a completely different experience altogether. And every criticism I just leveraged, I take it all back. Uh, the characters are very realistic, and I believe all of them. Yeah, the acting's not that good, but I just, I don't really, it's a horror movie. I don't care. Mm. <laughs> um, I disagree with you about the directing, Rob. I think the directing is fine. It gets the job done. And importantly, because he has the background in effects, that is probably why he was able to work with the team to create such good effects. Like, th this monster, it's, it's just, it's there. That is a real monster. I believe it. It looks amazing. The kills are great. They're very creative. I love when he stabs the one guy with a shotgun. Like, he steals the guy's shotgun and he stabs him with it. That's awesome. And, like, I was really invested in everything that was happening. Uh, I, I think it blends the drama and the campy very well. I, I, I loved it. Um, <laughs> I don't know why I didn't like it last time. I'm torn between two and a half and three bones. And I think next time I watch it, it may go up or down because I don't, I'm so confused about how polar opposite my experience was this time. For now, I'm going to cautiously give it two and a half with the potential for it to go up in the future. Huh. I think that's a good review. I'm glad you liked it because I remember <laughs> getting ready for this. You said you didn't like Pumpkinhead. I'm like, ah, oh, fuck. I did like I feel, I feel like Pumpkinhead is like an underappreciated like horror icon and he's just really cool looking to me. And he has such a cool fucking name. Pumpkinhead. That's <laughs> awesome. On that note, I think that wraps up this episode. Uh, once again, we are Cadaver Dogs, and until next time. It's a pentacle, a five-pointed star. It's used in witchcraft. Lon Chaney Jr. at Universal Studios maintained that's the mark of the Wolfman. <laughs>